0: Paranormal experiences are what are called by some people miracles. In our Christian sense, then, not all of them are miracles, actually. That is, such things as moving or bending objects without touching them, that is, with the power of mind over matter, traveling to distant places out of the body, foretelling future events, speaking in strange tongues, levitating, entering into contact with extraterrestrial intelligences, going for v- rides and flying saucers, and such things. Such experiences, which were once associated with far-out occultism or Pentecostalism, have now become so respectable that they are studied in the parapsychology laboratories of some of our leading universities. I think Stanford has a rather large laboratory in this kind. In fact, recently, in the last few years, they studied this Israeli young man, Yuri Jeller, who was able to concentrate on rings and spoons and things, and they simply go limp in front of him and bend. And he gets this from those beings up there who are giving him power. The cause of this phenomenon is, first of all, the spiritual vacuum which exists in men who are uncommitted to Christianity. That is the same cause which produces in other people the spread of communism. In fact, it is very interesting to see how some types of men are attracted because they're empty, their hearts are empty of Christ. They're attracted to joining an underground group which blows up bridges and destroys uh, capitalists and all kinds of things like that. And others, on the other hand, are attracted to some kind of movement where you can attain meditation and levitate, fly in the air, and have all kinds of strange experiences. But the, the foundation of both is the same thing, the emptiness of the heart which has not God. The human heart is made for God, and if it is deprived of God or rejects Him, it will sooner or later be attracted to false religions. That's also why communism has the power of a false religion, because people give to it the enthusiasm they should be given to, to Christ. This religious interest, by the way, is also present in the USSR and parapsychologists are even more active there than in the United States. They have many magicians and sorcerers in the Soviet Union now, and they're examined. Witches, all kinds of strange people, and the Soviets place them in their laboratories and tell them, please start concentrating, make that plant die, or make the spoon bend, and so forth. And they transfer the one particular witch who makes things float (laughs) through the air, and they examine how heavy the object was, and so forth. As Christianity retreats, and it's obvious Christianity is retreating, such phenomena are bound to multiply in the 1980s. They go hand in hand with the advance of communism. Both come from and themselves produce coldness in men who have rejected God, and they produce a callous self-centeredness in those who do not know the, the God of love. Because communism has no higher principle to guide it, but is based on the negative emotions of hatred and revenge, Various currents of Eastern thought have already tried to set themselves up as the wave of the future, the religion that will take over from Christianity. The Maharishi, the founder of Transcendental Meditation, set at his goal several years ago to initiate every person in the world. In fact, he set up a goal of establishing, what was it, a thousand centers or ten thousand centers, and each one has a certain number of thousands to initiate, and then all the four billion people of the world will be initiated. And then a new consciousness comes, and the world enters into a period of harmony. And he set up a a worldwide university in Switzerland someplace and educates these people who are able to initiate people into his religion. Other cults have similar aims. But none of these cults by itself is the religion of the future. They are all only signs of the spiritual vacuum in modern man. While many of these paranormal experiences are probably only natural and others are obviously fraudulent, just as many of the mediums around are quite fraudulent, many of them undoubtedly involve reality, and this reality comes from no place else but demons. The kind of things that happen to people in close encounters with unidentified flying objects, flying saucers, in out-of-body experiences and such things clearly indicate the presence of demons. This demonic activity is bound to increase in the 1980s, because once they have gained a foothold and men are receptive to them, demons do not go away. And we can see how receptive people are to these kind of events. There's almost a fascination among a large segment of society today for these strange experiences which are far from Christianity. But even such activity of demons has, for a conscious Orthodox Christian who is trying to find out What is what? What is life? How can I react? It has a positive side, because the very boldness of the activity of demons can awaken men to the reality of the demonic world. And up until the last few years, most people had no idea that demons are real. Demons are something in the subconscious or some kind of uh, bad impulses in man, anything else but real beings who wish to destroy us. And all of a sudden, all these events occur, which cannot be explained by something within man. There's something outside, which is doing it, and it looks miraculous. And therefore, to become aware of this demonic realm, in the case of Christians, can arouse one to spiritual vigilance and struggle. And if one reads the lives of saints throughout the history of the church, we will see that the the their these lives are filled with incidents of demonic activity and the saints were very much aware of it. That is, those who are more aware of spiritual life are more aware of those who try to destroy us, the demons. And it is even possible in the case of unbelievers, for them seeing the reality of demonic activity, to get so scared that they come to Christ, to come to religion. The coming decade of the 1980s will undoubtedly be one that is less lukewarm and indifferent than past decades as more people choose either for fervent Christianity or to do the work of the devil. We ourselves must be very clear in our choice and prepared to help others who are confused by occult ideas. And this again is the realm of apologetics because we know the true doctrine of the religious world and these occult ideas have false ideas, false doctrines of the religious world. Therefore we can explain to you what these experiences mean. On the eve of the 1980s, some months ago, late 1978, there was a spectacular religious event which stunned the world. The mass suicides of nearly 1000 people at Jonestown in South America. The secular press unable to find an explanation for something which was so out of harmony with the century of progress, finally decided that the leader Jim Jones was simply a madman and his followers were sometimes somehow hypnotized. But this is no explanation. Such enormous evil cannot be explained apart from the activity of demons. And in fact, as Jim Jones quite explicitly said, that he was in contact with beings from outer space who told him what to do. Nowadays it should be noted when demons have become out of fashion that when they want to act on men, they present themselves as beings from outer space quite often in order to gain acceptance and influence men. Actually, this Jim Jones was quite in harmony with the times, both in his communist politics, because his Jonestown was actually a Marxist commune, and all the property after the commune was was destroyed because everybody died. All the property was willed to the Communist Party of the USSR. He was therefore in harmony in his communism, and in his occult religious views. And I'm afraid to say that in the 1980s we should rather expect to see some more events like that because both communism and occultism are an increase and the number of souls who are empty who have either rejected Christ or somehow don't know him and are want something else is increasing all the time. Now before I come towards the end and talk about the situation of orthodoxy in the next decade we'll have a little intermission to allow us to breathe a little. Before going to the next uh, half of the lecture, I'd like to mention one point. Those people are going to be here for some time for these courses, or today, tomorrow, whatever. It is also possible between times to make profitable use of the times between lectures. And for example, we just discovered a new publication by our local uh, printers across the mountains from us. Eastern Orthodox Books have a little publication on Metropolitan Innocent of Moscow. That's a very good reading because, in fact, the lecture today we didn't hear much about his life, so this gives more about his life, a very good collateral reading for the, for the, uh, the lecture. And then there are other books like this, Orthodoxy, the Religion of the Future, goes into much more detail about what I talked about, occultism, about the UFOs and so forth. And then the latest Orthodox word, and many of the Orthodox words which are over there, have what I mentioned before, the lives of people like new martyrs and this one here, New Martyr Archbishop Seraphim of um, Uglich. And we don't know too much about his life, but what we have is a first-hand account of how he was living in this prison camp. And that's one little glimpse, which is very valuable, It gives us a first-hand account of what what it's like. So these materials also will be available for people to be (coughs) studying at various times when they have the chance. Now, going further into the 1980s, we've discussed the first two rather frightening aspects of the increase of world communism and the increase of occultism. And I don't want to make any spooky predictions about what it's all going to end in. So, and we shouldn't necessarily uh, think, because these tendencies are going on, that, for example, America must definitely fall to communism or we're all going to be taken over by demons from outer space or something like that. Because these things happen, according, first of all, according to the emptiness of hearts. And the more a person is struggling in Christianity, the less one is affected by those things. And the more able one is to face them, if one is affected by them. And secondly, in talking about these general tendencies, as I mentioned in the beginning, It's really quite impossible to make some kind of prediction that by 1988 communism will take over the world or some kind of thing like that. And, in fact, there are all kinds of things which one cannot calculate. For example, if there were to be a world war, or something like a world war, then all calculations would be out. One has no idea what's going to happen in such a situation, whether world communism might fall, whether... um, Well, in other words, it's totally incalculable what's going to happen. So what I'm talking about is simply the tendencies of what is in the air, of which we should be aware without being too concerned about specific predictions. as what's going to happen. Now the next aspect comes a little closer to home, because I'd like to speak about the situation of Orthodox Christianity in the 1980s. The first aspect I'd like to talk about <coughs> concerns what I already mentioned at the beginning, the spirit of worldliness, the watering down of orthodoxy, the loss of the sense of difference between orthodoxy and heterodoxy. These have produced the ecumenical movement in our times, which is leading to the approaching union, the union, with Rome and the Western Confessions. And such a thing could very well happen in the 1980s. Just in the last year or so, the new Pope of Rome has made overtures to the East, and the Patriarch of Constantinople has said how much he welcomes them, And it could very well be within a few years that there will be a communion between the Pope and Orthodoxy, that is, the Orthodox jurisdictions that follow the Ecumenical Patriarch. (coughs) For us, of course, we would be outside that, and it would not concern us directly, but it's something we have to face. This will probably not be a spectacular event, because most Orthodox people and most jurisdictions have become so unaware of their faith and so indifferent to it that they will only welcome the opportunity to receive, say, communion in a (coughs) Roman or an Anglican church and would not even know what's wrong with it. This spirit of worldliness is what is in the air and seems natural today. In fact, it might be said to be the religious equivalent of the atheist agnostic atmosphere which is in back of the spread of communism in the world. What should be our response to this movement towards uh, watering down the faith uniting it with the Western Confessions. Fortunately, our bishops in the Russian Church outside of Russia have given us a sound policy to follow. We do not participate in the ecumenical movement. Our Metropolitan has warned other Orthodox churches of the disastrous results of their ecumenical course if they continue it, but at the same time our bishops have refused to cut off all contact and communion with Orthodox churches who are involved in the ecumenical movement recognizing that the ecumenical movement is still a tendency that has not yet come to its conclusion, which is the union with Rome, and that at least in the case of the Moscow Patriarchate and other churches behind the Iron Curtain, the ecumenism is a political policy which is enforced upon the church by secular authorities. But thus our Russian church abroad suffers attacks both from the left side, from ecumenists who accuse us of being uncharitable, behind the times and all those things, which up-to-date modern people are not supposed to be, and from the right side by groups, especially in Greece, that demand that we break communion with all other Orthodox churches and declare them to be without grace. If one looks at the state of the Orthodox Church in Greece, we can see that there the ecumenical movement has produced a reaction which has often become excessive, and sometimes is almost as bad as the disease it seeks to cure. The more moderate of the old calendar groups in Greece, those that are broken off from the mainline church, the church in Athens and Constantinople, has a position, this old-calendarist church has a position very similar to that of our Russian church abroad. But among these old-calendarists, there have been schism after schism over the question of strictness. I especially like to uh, direct our attention to this question of strictness, which seems such a good thing to be strict and zealous, but it has a very negative side if we do not approach it the right way for example I know one monk on Mount Athos in fact he's been in this very monastery who is in communion with only ten other monks in the whole world and with nobody else in the whole Orthodox Church and he is a moderate he has one priest that's a very good man father Herman met him and if this priest if this priest were to die he would have nowhere to receive Holy Communion. I asked him when I saw him a few years ago what he would do in that case, and he said, I just don't know. I'm stuck. And the reason he's a moderate is that he recognizes that there is grace in all the other Orthodox churches. But he is so strict in this policy that because the Patriarch of Constantinople is already speaking about being soon in union with Rome, and is already going away from the faith, therefore he has fallen, and anyone who is in communion with him, or is in communion with someone who is in communion with him, or is in communion with someone who is in communion with someone who is in communion with him, is out. And therefore, being strict, he finds that this network he has established out of strictness includes the whole Orthodox Churches every place in the world, except in his one little corner of Mount Athos. In fact, not, not even all... No, no, no. oh. <coughs> Himself, there well there's but there's ten others who think like him apparently <clears throat> maybe it 's fewer now but this is an, and he's a very good man he 's very sincere, very zealous, he's sort of simple, and he has no answers for other people who are stuck with having to live in the world and things like that he's very sort of in some respects very childlike, but the strictness of his has placed him in such a position that he 's like like painting himself into a corner, and he has sort of no opportunity to be in fellowship and contact with other people who are actually of the same mind he is but just haven't got this particular point about not being in communion with those who are in communion and so forth but other groups in greece have a more a spirit which is something close to what one might call fanatical a few years ago one of these groups excommunicated our russian church abroad because our bishops refused to declare that all other orthodox churches are without grace This group now declares that since 1924 only it has had grace, and only it is orthodox. This group has recently attracted a few converts from our Russian church abroad, so we should be aware that this attitude is a danger to some of us American and European converts. With our calculating rationalistic Western minds, it is very easy to think we are being zealous and strict when actually we are chiefly indulging our passions for self-righteousness. One old calendar bishop in Greece has written us that incalculable harm has been done to the Orthodox Church in Greece by what he calls the correctness disease, when people quote the Canons, the Fathers, the Typicon, in order to prove that they are correct. This correctness disease, which occurs when people quote the Canons, the Fathers, and the Typicon, the Church services, in order to prove that they are correct and everyone else is wrong. Correctness can truly become a disease when it is administered without love and tolerance and awareness of one's own imperfect understanding. Such a correctness only produces continual schisms, and in the end it only helps the ecumenical movement by reducing the witness of sound orthodoxy. Because now in Greece, the... New Calendar Church laughs at the old calendars because there are so many different groups, or at least five different jurisdictions. Therefore, the first fact about Orthodoxy today <clears throat> and into the 1980s is the worldly spirit by which Orthodoxy is losing its savor. Orthodox Christians are ceasing to be the salt of the world. This is expressed in the ecumenical movement together with the excessive reaction against it, which is becomes excessive because it has the same worldly spirit which is present in the ecumenical movement. But there is a second fact about orthodoxy today which will become even more important in the 1980s. This is a positive sign of of the world ahead of us. That is that converts are coming to orthodoxy in increasing numbers. Some of them are fleeing from the modernism of Roman Catholicism and Anglicanism and the, uh, the Protestant sects. Some of them are running away from contact with the demonic world of occultism. Some of them are running away from communism, from unbelief. There are many converts in Russia, by the way, from 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 atheism. We must be aware that one of the chief things by which these new converts to the Orthodox faith will absorb the teaching and, above all, the spirit of Orthodoxy, will be their living contact with us who are now Orthodox Christians. Therefore, the way we live our orthodoxy itself has a missionary function. The orthodox missionary movement in the West is and will probably remain a rather small one. But there is one area today where the orthodox mission is a major movement. This is East Africa. Especially in the last 20 years or so, this mission has gained many thousands of converts in Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, the Congo, and other African states. I don't have it here, we have a whole issue, an orthodox word, half of an issue several years ago devoted to these missions in Africa. We send our orthodox word into these places, especially into Uganda, and especially from Uganda we receive replies from orthodox people, usually young people who are looking for pen pals or scholarships or all kinds of things anybody, from us. If anybody wants <clears throat> Brother Glef, he's in charge. We have lots of, uh, apps. Lately we've become in fact known throughout East Africa in fact in West Africa also in Ghana and Nigeria if you want to get some free picture books you write to the Orthodox Word and they send you picture books and Bibles we've begun sending Bibles now to Nigeria and Ghana and various places like that and these letters we receive are very touching because they're extremely simple and they show how deeply and how simply the people in East Africa are re- accepting the orthodox faith. I'd like to read here one letter which we received just two weeks ago, which is an appeal to our, from our orthodox brothers in one town in Uganda. And this is a very moving text which we'll print in the next issue of Orthodox Word. It shows... Well, you'll see what it shows. <clears throat> it's handwritten. They have no typewriters there. And they never get a typewritten letter from East Africa. And it reads as follows. From the Transfiguration, in fact, it's all misspelled. They all speak a little English, but the English is such that you often have to translate it back into American English. Because it does it, does it. <clears throat> From the Transfiguration Orthodox Church in Degea, Uganda, P.O. Box 238, Bombo. It's written to the directors of the Orthodox Word Platina. Dear Fathers, On behalf of the Degea Parish Council, the Reverend Father Mulunga, our parish leader, and the congregation, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. In fact, all letters from Uganda, Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, always begin in a very pious way. In fact, some of them sound like epistles of St. Paul. We send our peaceful and joyful greetings to all of you, brothers, and say our thanks to God who loves us and unites us into one brotherhood. Although you live far away from Africa, yet by the guidance of the Holy Ghost, the love of the Father, and the unity of our Lord Jesus, that heavenly form has put us into one room, whatever that means, one one area, one church and one Father, we feel for one another, we pray as one person. In this element, we communicate our human living with far people, that is, distant people, So through this relation, we ask you to join us to praise God and glorify his name, Alleluia, for his most wonderful deed and his miracles around his nations. Fellow churchmen, we want you to know the wonderful miracles which God has done in Uganda in this year that ought to be known by all churches and be written for future history. Brother, this postal message may be sent to all churches in your country. In short, the story is this. Uganda has been in a bad political situation since about eight years ago. Under the leadership of a Sudanian minority president, Idi Amin, a man who has been on the radio spot around the world, that is mentioned in radios around the world, for his rudeness and is the worst murderer in the world. I trust people here know about Idi Amin, this frightful dictator just recently... There have been, uh, he was overthrown, and there are pictures of his torture chambers, just like communism. Only he does it in his own name, in order to make Islam the religion of Uganda. He legislated hard laws upon the people. He interfered with the churches by changing Sunday services to Friday, that is, the Muslim Holy Day. He appointed Muslims to be chairman of synods. Bishops were to be appointed by a state body. Some churches were forbidden. All churches were at the last point to be closed. And we know that in Uganda, all churches were forbidden except the Roman Catholic, Anglican, and Orthodox. All sects were wiped out. And the Orthodox and Anglican Catholics were on the list to be abolished. And the Anglican Archbishop was simply shot down in cold blood. <clears throat> so the... <clears throat> So that this government that was anti-church put all the Christians in hot soup, which means grave danger, obviously, and it very difficult for them. He soon declared that Uganda is only a Muslim state. Many priests and Christians were killed. Some went into exile. A few of us, poor men who had nowhere to go, no help of receiving help, were left in Uganda. We lifted up our hands and called on our Lord to save his poor and to allow the work of the churches to survive. We sent so many messages over the world to pray for us and for his work in Africa. Through the prayers of the nations, God destined, God listened and heard the voices from his creature, and he answers them. In a wonderful manner, like the story we read in the Holy Bible by Moses in Egypt, God saved us, this miracle was done before us. We got peace, freedom and worship and prayer. Please nations, join and coordinate your prayers with us. God brought the force of President Nyeri from another state, Tanzania. He gave him the strongest armies to come down in Uganda and dismiss the anti church president. This was done. Amin was cast out from Uganda. We are now free to have so peace and freedom of worship. We ask all the churches to praise him and send this message everywhere. Dear brothers, through the Liberation War, many churches, schools, and houses were boomed, meaning bombed. Many people were killed. There are so many widows. Without schools and helpless, our people are in need of food, milk, blankets, shirts, coats, shoes, plates, books, icons, and so forth. We then call all good Christians to open their hands and give support to the poor. And also the Degea Parish Council is applying for your church magazines. Thank you. Peace and love, may peace and love survive among all the Orthodox churches. Yours, Azariah Mwanja, the Chairman, Efemosi Nakila, the Secretary, Reverend Father Emmanuel Malunga, Parish Priest. In fact, we have a a photograph of this Father Emmanuel Malunga in Orthodox Word ten years ago with his daughter. He was a deacon then. He's been receiving Orthodox for all these years. Well, a very moving letter, very simple people, and they've gone through this tremendous experience in Uganda, which is very much like the Soviet experience, and now they're giving thanks to God, and their images from the Old Testament, Moses and Egypt, and they want people to share, to help them. A very touching thing. Now, some who wish to be correct will remind us that the Orthodox Church in Africa is under the Patriarchate of Alexandria. The Patriarchate of Alexandria is under the new calendar. And they might even think that we should have no contact with them. About this I'd like to say a word. To preserve the ancient traditions and canons of the Church is a good thing, and those who willfully and needlessly depart from them will be judged by God. Those who introduced the new calendar into the Orthodox Church in the 1920s and later, and thereby brought division and modernism into the Church, will have much to answer for. In fact, only a few years ago, the Patriarch of Alexandria, before this Patriarch, was thinking of going back to the old calendar. But he died before he could do it. (laughs) But the simple people of Africa understand nothing of all this, and to preach the correct old calendar to them could produce nothing more than a squabble over theoretical points that would only interfere with their simple reception of orthodox faith. Western converts are often skilled in debating such theoretical points, even to the extent of writing whole tomes and treatises on the canons and their interpretation. But this is an orthodoxy of the head, full of the spirit of calculation and self-justification. And what is most of all needed, especially in the perilous days ahead, is the much deeper orthodoxy of the heart, which this simple letter from Uganda reveals. In fact, almost without exception, the letters we receive from Africa have the same spirit of simplicity. In fact, even when they're trying to trick us to give them money for something that's not quite right, you can sort of see it, but it's done so simply that it's actually very touching. They have the same faults as people in the West, but the simplicity, God will surely forgive them much for for that simplicity. whereas letters from Western converts very seldom have anything like this simplicity. I believe we can learn much in this respect from our African brothers. In accepting Orthodoxy, they have accepted Christ first of all, and with their whole heart, and this is also what we must do. There will undoubtedly be an increasing number of Orthodox converts in America and Europe also in the coming decade, and we must strive that our missionary witness to them Will help to produce not cold calculating correct experts in the letter of the law but warm loving simple christians at least as far as our calculating western temperament will allow us and if we truly believe in christ and truly accept his church then this cold rationalistic temperament we have should gradually begin to soften and change <clears throat> So this is something of the situation of the Orthodox Church today, how we should strive for more simplicity and how, in fact, many thousands of people are being converted in places like Africa and coming with the utmost simplicity. Just a few years ago, there was a mass baptism in Kenya where 5,000 people in one day were baptized. So it's obvious this is a very big thing. Orthodoxy now is the third religion in these countries. The final event (coughs) of the 1980s, (coughs) which I would like to point to as instructive for us, is one that has a few more questions than the other ones, and it's more difficult to predict what's going to happen, and that is the religious awakening of Russia. (coughs) No one can deny that there is a religious revival going on in Russia today. Adult converts are being baptized by the thousands in the Orthodox Church, not to mention Protestants, Pentecostals, and in some parts of Russia, Roman Catholics. The Samizdat, underground press, is filled with discussions of religion. In fact, even the official government press begins to talk about religion, although of course from its atheist point of view. But even the, the press allows interest in old churches, icons, and things like that. But so far there is very little indication of the depth and orthodoxy of this religious revival. Undoubtedly much of it is more psychological than spiritual. A natural reaction against decades of enforced atheism and materialism. And much of the material that feeds this revival is not very orthodox at all. For example, the writings of Vidyaev, Bulgakov, and the various orthodox modernists who have been in the West in the past 60 years. Therefore, we cannot say for certain that this is the beginning of the restoration of orthodoxy in Russia, which some prophetic voices in 19th century Russia have foreseen as occurring just before the end of the world. That, if by God's will it occurs, will be something quite different from today's revival, which is still very much on the human level. Though, of course, it's obvious in many places God's grace is operating and converting people. But there is one voice in in Russia today who is very authentically orthodox and has much to say to us. This is Father Dmitry Dudko. Several of his books, which are collections of his sermons and talks, have been published in the past few years, and they speak directly to the heart of Orthodox believers in the free world. What he has to say is very simple. Atheism has ruined Russia. We must return to our Orthodox Christian roots. We must stand together against the common foe of atheism, but we must love everyone and know the resurrection of Christ in our hearts. It cannot be that the blood and suffering of Russia's new martyrs will not bear fruit in a resurrected Russia. God is with us. All this, of course, very sound, very deeply orthodox. One may well disagree with some of Father Dutko's various opinions on subjects, but just as in the case of our African brothers, for the sake of his warm, loving Christian heart, one can overlook much when it comes to theoretical points. It is obvious that the very fact of suffering in the Soviet Union, and Father Dmitry himself spent eight years, I believe, in concentration camps and is under constant threat of arrest three or four years ago, there was a special accident prepared for him he was going to um, to Moscow and the bridge was suddenly closed before his car got there he noticed a secret police car, it looked like a secret police car in front of him the bridge was suddenly closed and a detour arranged a detour of a hundred and fifty kilometers around on dirt roads in the middle of this detour a car suddenly came out from a side road and crashed into him and both his legs were broken and instantly, from nowhere, an ambulance appeared and was prepared to take him to a hospital in Moscow. And it so happened that his doctor was with him in the car. And the doctor said, if you go to Moscow, you're a dead man. Don't do it. I'll take care of you. And so somehow they managed to not take the ambulance. And the doctor took care of although he had two broken legs. Obviously, he was in pain. The doctor took care of and brought him to his own place. And he was gradually nursed back to health. That's the kind of things that one has to go through if one is going to speak bold in the Soviet Union. Since that time, they have, they've transferred him out of his, the parish where he was, but they've not tried to kill him and not put him into a prison camp yet, although he's been declared enemy of the people in several uh, the Soviet newspapers. So this is the kind of conditions under which a person has to live if he's going to speak the truth in the Soviet Union. This suffering which people like him go through gives a strength to his words that is not present in the words of most Orthodox speakers in the free world. Once, Father Dimitri, in this book, which I don't see here, we should have somewhere, is called, it's in English, translated from his talks called Our Hope. And these are simply talks which he gave after the all-night vigil on Saturday nights in his parish near Moscow. And people would, he would give little talks, people would ask questions, all kinds of questions, like what's the difference between atheism and communism, I mean, atheism and uh, orthodoxy, and should we be Catholic, what's wrong with Baptists, and why should I believe in, in the Trinity, and all kinds of questions like that, a very ABC level. And he gave various answers, very heartfelt answers, very good to these people. And once he was asked by one of these questioners, that the, they began by saying how much better off religion was in the free world because there they are free, they have churches which are open, there are many priests, and they have no problems like we have in Russia. And he gave an answer which was something like the following. He said that it is true that in the West there is freedom, there are many churches, but he said the religion of the West is a spirituality with comfort. And we in Russia have a different path, a path of suffering that can produce real fruit. And he emphasized that the blood of our martyrs must be the seed of Christianity in Russia. We should remember this phrase, spirituality with comfort, when we look at our own <coughs> feeble orthodoxy in the free world. Are we content to have beautiful churches and chanting? Do we perhaps boast that we keep the fasts in the church calendar, that we have good icons and congregational singing, that we give to the poor and perhaps tithes to the church? Do we delight in exalted patristic teachings and theological conferences without having the simplicity of Christ in our hearts? Then, in this case, ours is a spirituality with comfort, and we will not have the spiritual fruits that will be exhibited by those without all these comforts who deeply suffer and struggle for Christ. It's very important for converts to bear in mind that when you come to orthodoxy, the important thing is not the icons, that they be in the good style, that the church be a replica of an ancient church, that the singing is all proper, and so forth. The important thing is we are converted to Christ, and all these uh, external aspects help. They can help if we use them right to worship Christ. But if we are captivated or fascinated by them, we will be totally superficial. And when we come across someone like Father Dimitri, we will just dismiss him, not understand him, think that we are better than he is. So in this sense, we should take our tone for our orthodoxy from the suffering church in Russia and place the externals of the church's worship in their proper place. To do this, we must learn more of the life of the church and of Christians in Russia, as I mentioned above. Here again, someone who wishes to be correct might object. Father Dmitry is in the Moscow Patriarchate. How can we take our tone from him? We have no communion with the Moscow Patriarchate. In fact, one convert wrote to us not long ago, after leaving our church and going to one of the Greek uh, old calendar churches, because we were not strict enough, he said that Father Dimitri should be told to quit the Moscow Patriarchate and join the Catacomb Church, or else he will lose his soul. And if you don't tell him that, you are just fooling him. But this, again, is the answer of the orthodoxy of the head, of calculation and correctness. The answer of the heart is very different. If you ask any bishop or priest, a Russian bishop especially, or priest of our Russian Church abroad, what he thinks about Father Dmitri, probably almost without exception you will hear nothing but warm praise of him. Even the strictest of our bishops with regard to the Moscow Patriarchate has written an article in the appreciation of him, recognizing that he speaks for Orthodoxy in a way that in the West we don't. Of course it is understood by everyone that there are differences between us that at the present time we could not have communion with him, because whether he wills or not, he is part of a church organization which is bound up with the Soviet government. But his warm, heartfelt Christianity is so real that it cannot but be felt by any true son of the Orthodox Church, and it can be fe- it can be of immense benefit to us who live in the cold, rationalistic West. We know from members of the catacomb church themselves that they do not judge Orthodox people who receive Holy Communion from patriarchate priests like Father Dmitri given the fact that the catacomb church has so few bishops and priests, and in many places simply is not to be found at all. Like recently, Father Dimitri, like the last issue of this particular magazine, Pasiev, which is not a religious magazine, but it has religious, like that's Father Dimitri. call. <clears throat> it has religious news, often has letters of Father Dimitri. In the last issue, there was a letter from Father Dimitri, or an article, in which he talks about, the Catacomb Church a little bit. And he mentions something about sort of what, what can we do? What are we what kind of orthodoxy do we have? He mentions the two kinds in the Moscow Patriarchate. One is the patriarch demon and the people who want to keep the externals going at any cost. And he says they do good work because they're conservative, they keep the rituals of the church. Of course they have to lie to do it. Because they have to say there's no persecution in the Soviet Union. They have to go abroad to these conferences and speak about communism, praise it, say that it has done much more for Russia than capitalism does for the West. So they have to lie. And so that's one kind of thing we're faced with. Another thing is the movement of reform, which apparently is very strong in the Russian church now, that they wish to do away with the, the living church spirit of the 1920s, they wish to do away with all kinds of rituals, reform the church, renovate it, make it up to date. And he says, these people don't care who they lie to or how much of the secret police they have to use. They're just concerned to blow up the church and that's all they care about and make it new. <clears throat> and he says, what can we do? Well, he says, some people say there's a catacomb church. And he says, well, yes, there is a catacomb church and he greatly respects it. But he says there's so few of them and you can you, many people cannot possibly get into contact with them because they hide themselves and therefore it cannot be an answer for us at the present time in Russia. And he says he knows several people. In some places he says the spirit is not too good because they get very narrow. There are some places where nuns run the services because there are no priests, and they're convinced everybody is a heretic but themselves. This apparently is the same spirit that there are in some places in Greece. Of course, other places there's a very different feeling because we have letters, or rather whole articles from people in the catacomb church which have a very moderate tone to them. But he says he even talked to one person in the catacomb church, and this person is totally cut off from the sacraments because there's no more church, and his area of the catacomb church is totally absent. And he's sort of surviving, keeping up the faith, being loyal, and he had a spiritual talk with Father Dimitri. He says, when he got finished talking to me, he received communion from me. And if you look at the strict point of view, the one must be <clears throat> for the catacomb church at all costs, you can say he shouldn't have done that. But from the pastoral, spiritual point of view, you can see that in this particular circumstance, that's probably what's best for him, to be at least receive the sacraments, because in the Catholic Church, they don't deny that there's sacraments in the Moscow Patriarchate. At least receive the sacraments, and receive God's grace, and and have strength to keep struggling. And Father Dimitri said at once he came alive. Before that, he was just sort of just struggling, just his own will, and he has no access to the sacraments. And now he had the sacraments and suddenly came alive. He felt that, he, that new life went into him because the grace of God acts. So in this case, that was the best thing for him. He could even, if he'd continue without communion, who knows? He might have gotten finally discouraged and fallen away from Christ altogether. So in this case, we cannot judge by the letter of the law. We have to judge according to, but that's what Father Demetrius is constantly doing, judging by the spiritual needs of the present moment. And in the future, when we're going to have a situation much worse, probably, with regard to Orthodox churches than today, when there'll be some in communion with the Patriarch of Rome, that is, the Pope of Rome, that's fallen away from Orthodoxy. And others, you won't even know who the priest is. You might be a very confused situation. We will not be able to have some kind of a... memorize some kind of a rule that will save us. We have to be spiritually prepared and spiritually open to understand what's going on, or else we won't be able to know where to receive communion or anything of the sort. What will happen to the Russian religious revival, and what's Father Dmitry's final word? By the way, concerning this, after he describes these two people in the Patriarchate who have to lie to survive, and the catacomb church, which is almost invisible, and he says, what can we do? Well, let's just keep going forward the best we can and trust in God. Of course, that's the best they can do in this situation. What will happen to the Russian religious revival in the 1980s and beyond, we do not know. Much will also depend on the political situation. The fall of the Communist government during a war or similar catastrophe would produce, of course, results which we cannot possibly calculate. And it's obvious the thing which, which the Russian people expect, thinking Russian people expect more than anything else, that is, the invasion from China. If that occurs, well, of course, awakened some tremendous thing in Russia. We can't possibly calculate what it might be. Something totally new 30 years later. Who knows what might happen if there's this invasion or a world war. It's at times like that that tremendous events happen. And we know from people who've come out of Russia that nobody in Russia believes in communism. But there's no possible way to overthrow communism because the dictatorship is so strong and the police are so entrenched and you never know who's spying on you. It is simply impossible to get a group of more than three people going without having the communists close it down. Whatever big change will occur in Russia will be as the result of some kind of event like an invasion or a war. And this we cannot predict. That's in God's providence and according to conditions which we can't calculate from. <clears throat> but we should be discerning and aware regarding voices which come from Russia because many of them are very liberal and do not have right orthodox ideas at all. But also we should be open and tolerant Bearing lest we reject spiritual truth in the name of theoretical correctness. That is, whenever we read anything that comes from Russia, we should read it not according to the letter of the law, but according to the orthodoxy which comes from Jesus Christ, the true Christianity. And judge it on that basis. Are they, do they have love for Christ? Are they doing the best they can in their circumstances? That's, that's the way we should look at it. The recovery of faith in Russia is perhaps the most alive thing in the orthodox world today and it can inspire us to treasure our own faith all the more, and inspire us also to increase the talent which God has given us to speak the truth of orthodoxy in the conditions of freedom. Now to our conclusions. Up to now I've discussed some of the religious tendencies which we should be seeing in the 1980s, but I have not mentioned what particular importance these years may have. I think I should mention a word about this, why the 1980s are important. I think it is no exaggeration to call the 1980s a pre-apocalyptic period. Most of the tendencies I've mentioned above are those one should expect to see completed near to the end of the world. The worldwide triumph of communism would surely make the reign of a single world ruler, Antichrist, that much closer. The increase of occult phenomena and demonic activity is a preparation for the age of demonic miracles which will come with Antichrist. The restoration of Orthodox Russia, if it occurs, will be only shortly before the end of the world. I have not mentioned many of the disasters which many are now predicting for the 1980s. If you read any religious, especially fundamental, publications, and in fact many secular newsletters also, you will see predictions of widespread famines, world depression, world war. These are specific events which may also occur in these years but we cannot foresee them with great accuracy. In any case, our primary concern must be not with the external side of what lies before us, but with the spiritual side. Some religious groups, even now, are storing up food for the disaster they feel lies just ahead for America. We, on the other hand, should be storing up Christian love and knowledge, without which we will not survive spiritually even if we do have enough food. In fact, if we have that Christian love and knowledge, God is going to give us the food. In conclusion, I would like to repeat a few of the qualities which I think are essential for our spiritual survival and fruitfulness in the dangerous days ahead. Our most important task, perhaps, is the Christian enlightenment of ourselves and others. We must go deeper into our faith, not by studying the canons of ecumenical councils or the Typicon, although they also have their place, but first of all by knowing how God acts in our lives. We must read more the lives of those who have pleased to God in the Old and New Testament, for example. And it's a fact that we read the Scriptures much too little. In the Old Testament has many instructive accounts. We see that the Africans do read the Old Testament. They know about Moses. They know about Egypt. <clears throat> They're often giving examples from the Old Testament. We should be reading the lives of saints, the writings of the holy fathers on practical spiritual life according to our level beginning of the ABCs, like St. John of Kronstadt, the Unseen Warfare. We should be learning about the sufferings of Christians today and in recent years, and in places like Uganda, places like Russia. In all this learning, our eyes must be, first of all, not on the suffering aspect, not on the terrible things that happen. Our eyes must be, first of all, on the Kingdom of Heaven, which makes all these things tolerable. Because if we have in our heart the fact that we are made for another world, and this life is short and soon we'll be facing that other world, that all the things in this life will be, as the Nikon told us today, this Father Nikon said all these tortures were to him great joy, because he sees that through this he's getting the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, after the importance of enlightening ourselves, We must not close ourselves in and preserve our talent without multiplying it for others. If we do this, our orthodoxy will become a sect and not the true Christianity. We must be open and prepared to help and enlighten others. And we will find opportunities for doing this on every hand, because there are people today who are looking for orthodoxy. In terms of numbers, you look at America with its 240 million people, the numbers of those who wish to, who are looking for orthodoxy may be very few, but it's enough. Every place you look, in fact, every person here will have opportunity to be in contact with someone who is looking for the true Church of Christ. And they come from surprising places. We know about the mission in Uganda, for example, that for many years they struggled after finding out through their reading, these two Anglican seminarians finding out that orthodoxy must be the Church. And they went through such difficulties. They found a, a false Orthodox priest who was some kind of sectarian. They went to the Patriarch of Alexandria, who was, who was an ecumenist, and he said, go back to the Anglicans. We don't have anything you want. And they still didn't give up. They still kept knocking on the doors, and only after 20 years they found their way to the Orthodox Church. That kind of, of struggling, God sees. And he sees that they know. They know that there is a truth which is true no matter how many bad people there are in the Church no matter how many how many people are going against the tradition of the church the church itself is the truth and they want to find the way to get to the true church and they're coming from all different directions from the various Western confessions from unbelief from occultism and we should be prepared when we see a person who is involved with some kind of wrong belief our first attitude to them must be not to say oh ha! you're a heretic you're no good look how bad he is our first attitude must be to see that there is a person who needs enlightenment and in whatever way we can give it, we should give it. Often we don't need to say anything. Often the person himself will open up, will begin to ask. I was myself coming back and uh, I had to hitch a ride because one of our trucks broke down in one early morning. And an uh, ordinary person who lives someplace, Reading or Plutina or someplace, after putting the radio on and not wanting to talk about anything, all of a sudden closed the radio. And the last five minutes before I got to Plutina, he turned to me and said, Can you explain the Russian Orthodox faith in five minutes or less? And I had a chance right then, unexpectedly, to say some word about the truth. And this kind of thing is going to happen to many of us. In fact, everyone here will have these opportunities. Sometimes you can spot people like that, that they're interested, and you can begin to offer something. We should not throw our pearls before swine, that is, begin to preach Orthodoxy in the streets where people are not going to to trample on it and not appreciate it, unless they're we should be open to find opportunities to give the word to other people. Because we have the truth. We do not possess it as our own. We have it as like a loan. And we have it in order to save our own souls and to give to others. If our hearts are warm and loving, God will show us the way to do this, even if we do not know how to do it intellectually. Therefore, if we don't know how, we ask God. Next, our Christian Enlightenment finding out about our faith and how people are suffering today, should blossom in a conscious orthodox philosophy of life. A conscious orthodox philosophy of life. Our Christian enlightenment should blossom in a conscious orthodox philosophy of life. This means that we should know what we believe and what it means for our life. Our Orthodox Christian tradition contains the answers to all the searchings and all the legitimate questions of man's mind and all the questions which are being asked today. If we consciously steep ourselves in it and keep ourselves reading in Orthodox sources, we can communicate these answers. To give only one small uh, example, there are today many evangelistic fundamental Protestants who are becoming aware of... uh, these things that I'm talking about. For example, the activity of demons. They write books about unidentified flying objects and how there are demons in back of them. And if you read these books they write, knowing Orthodox Christian literature on this subject, you will be astonished at how naive they are, that they don't have the faintest idea of what demons are, how they act, they guess. They read the New Testament and they sort of guess from that. And in fact, one of them I read recently said, the New Testament doesn't really have a doctrine of demons, so we have to sort of make it up. And that means they haven't read the life of Anthony the Great. Because anybody who reads the life of Anthony the Great will, have, he will know what's going on in the world today. There the demons appear to him in all kinds of shapes. And one of the big problems which Protestants have, and Western investigators, is, for example, how demons can appear in solid form. How can they appear in a flying saucer which is real? Sometimes it disappears, it's true, but while it's there it's real. Sometimes it goes on radar. It leaves marks in the ground and the beings, they can touch you sometimes. How can a demon or an invisible being become visible and solid? It's an impossible question to answer from their point of view. If you read the life of Saint Anthony the Great, you find this is the way demons always appear. If you read the life of any Christian ascetic or saint, they do fantastic things. They throw people in the air and knock them down if God gives them power to do that. The reason we don't see it is because we're so weak, and God doesn't allow such things to happen to us. But the real strugglers, about whom we read, these things happen all the time. The demons are appearing in solid shapes and leaving visible things behind. Like this one this uh, cape, which was left to the disciple of Saint Martin, who had a demon appear to him, and he left a cape to prove that he was actually a, an angel. And as they were dragging him to St. Martin to see whether it was really an angel or a demon, the cape went poof and disappeared. But while it was there, it was real, and they examined it. It felt like silk, but they couldn't find the fabric, the threads. They didn't know quite what it was, but it was real. They touched it, and all of a sudden, poof, it vanished. The demons are constantly doing things like that. The same thing with flying saucers. So we, if we have these orthodox sources, we know. We have the orthodox doctrine, of, for example, of demons. And those who do not have these sources have no idea how to explain it and therefore they can go into fantastic errors. Like the one fundamentalist group, the Carl McIntyre group, who thinks that flying saucers are some kind of non-human beings from outer space who are going to come to help us out. Not even angels. I think there's some kind of non-human beings who live on other planets who are actually coming to help us out. And they heal you and do all kinds of good things to you. And of course, if you believe that, you are in deep trouble. But this very concept of the the conscious orthodox philosophy of life is one which will be developed more in the courses which are going to be given beginning the next few days and throughout next week. Because it's a very big thing. You don't develop this conscious orthodox philosophy of night from one lecture or overnight. It's a lifetime task. And finally, our Christian life and learning must be such that it will enable us, because this is the test of it, The test is not whether we are faithful to some canon of the Sixth Ecumenical Council. The test is whether this learning and our life will enable us to know the true Christ and, therefore, to recognize the false Christ, Antichrist, when he comes. It is not theoretical knowledge or correctness that will give this knowledge to us. Vladimir Solovyov, in his parable of Antichrist, has a valuable insight when he notes that in his fictitious account, which is very, however, true to life, that Antichrist will build a museum for the Orthodox of all possible Byzantine antiquities. That is, all ancient icons, all ancient chants, all ancient church architecture, ancient vestments, everything will be according to the ancient traditions, Byzantium. If only they will accept him and bow down to him. And so also, mere correctness in Orthodoxy without a loving Christian heart will not be able to resist Antichrist. And in fact, even those who recognize intellectually Antichrist will bow down to him if their hearts are cold. We will recognize him and be firm to stand against him chiefly through the heart and not the head. We must develop in ourselves the right Christian feelings and instincts and put off all our fascination with spiritual comforts, the spiritual comforts of the orthodox way of life, these external things which are good in themselves but are secondary. Or else we will be, as one discerning observer of present-day converts has observed, we will be orthodox but not Christian. We are called to be true and fervent Christians in these terrible times and thereby to show the world that orthodoxy is the true Christianity which even in these terrible days it still exists for the salvation of mankind. Amen.